What's up, everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt, and if you like the show, you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back, and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be focusing on three stories that happened in the past couple weeks. One update we got from Curious yesterday about an update in their AML indication. We're also going to talk about Replimune, which gave an update around ASCO time, and that led to a bit of a sell-off in the company, so I'm going to touch on that. And then the last story we're going to talk about, of course, is Biogen's aducanumab approval from the FDA. So like I said, I'm thrilled to be back, and again, I want to thank everybody for all their support. appreciate all the engagement on the YouTube channel as well as on Twitter, so feel free to tweet at me, at Matthew Lapoide, and you can also send me an email at MatthewLapoide at gmail.com. And with that, let's get to our first story, which is about Curis. And Curis, ticker symbol CRIS, traded down about 40% on Friday, June 11th, on positive updated data from their ongoing phase 1-2 study of CA4948 monotherapy in patients with relapsed or refractory acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. And for those who don't know, check out my video two episodes ago where I talked in a lot more detail about Curis, but they're basically trying to develop an IRAC4 inhibitor for the treatment of hematologic malignancies. And here they're focusing on AML and MDS. And what I had said in that previous episode was that I expected there to be no surprises in this data update. I assumed most of it was priced in and that it would be a modest data update, if anything, and that we shouldn't expect too much of a move in the stock. But Seems like I was completely wrong on that because the stock traded down intraday around 40% and it was able to recover before the end of the day, but it was a pretty significant move based on what I thought was a pretty insignificant data update. And I'll share what that was now. The number of valuable patients that they shared went from 9 to 12, and in that update to 12 patients, they went from 8 out of 9 that had lowered blasts to 10 out of 12 that had lowered blasts. So, you know, in the additional three patients that they shared, two of them had lowered blasts from baseline, which is something that you would want to see in an AML treatment. The number of objective responses went from four to five, and that additional response, I believe, was just a partial responder, which I still think is okay, and that shouldn't have merited to a 40% decline in the stock. And then the company did say that they selected a recommended phase two dose, which is going to be 300 milligrams, which I think is bullish for the stock, considering that there were concerns that their 500 milligram dose might be too strong for patients and lead to too many side effects. And I think that that would have been a problem if they did move ahead with the 500 milligram dose. But we see here that the company has agreed that 300 milligrams is what they're going to move forward with, which I think is great news. So... All of this, I think, is in line with what we've seen, and if anything, it just adds to the previous data set that we saw, uh, suggesting that CA4948 does have a pretty strong effect in AML and MTS. Some of the bare talking points that I read around Twitter and elsewhere suggested that the durability might not be there yet, and to some extent I agree, but I think it's just early, and I don't think that the durability is really something we need to question too much just now. But one thing that did catch my attention is the characterization of the company's complete responses I think is something we need to be mindful of. I feel like they have been a bit optimistic in what they're characterizing as a complete response. And I outlined here what I shared last time, which is four patients that experienced some sort of complete response. But when I looked in the definitions more closely, this here 
one patient experiencing full hematologic recovery complete response isn't really an official definition when it comes to analyzing patient recovery in AML. And obviously they're suggesting here that the patient is on its way to becoming a complete responder, but I don't think it's quite there yet and I don't really know what to make of something like this. So I think overall it's still good and it's nothing to really be concerned about, but these are the points that uh, the bears have been bringing up. So I think it's important to note. But for me, I think this is a great buying opportunity for Curious and I took a position in the mid eights in my portfolio and I think it's gonna be a great hold for the rest of 2021. And I'm just gonna share here some of the upcoming catalysts we expect to see. And I talked about these in my previous video, so check that out. But they have an anti-Vista antibody called CI8993, and they're gonna be doing a phase one data readout on initial safety and efficacy in solid tumors. So this could be a giant mover for the stock, even though we shouldn't have too much conviction in this readout. But the one that I think we're gonna see some nice data on is in CA4948, their IRAC4 inhibitor, and they're looking in non-Hodgkin lymphomas here. So we're gonna see data on that in the second half of 2021, and so far the data looks okay for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So I think for that reason, it's worth buying Curious here. I wanna move on to Replimune. And what Replimune shared is an update from its phase two skin cancer cohorts combining RP1 with Updevo, and they also added data from its phase one study of RP2 alone and in combination with Updevo. And on this data update that they shared, the company traded down around 20%, and since then they've recovered, which is nice, but they're trading now at around a $1.5 billion market cap. And I'll just say that on this downward move, I added to my position because I don't think that this really merited the decline in the stock that we saw. And just to give some background, and I also, I touched on this company in a previous video, so check that out as well, but the company is trying to commercialize oncolytic viruses. And they're currently in the middle of development, but the backbone of the virus has been approved before. It's a drug from Amgen where they saw positive data in melanoma. So what Replimune is trying to do is take that herpes simplex virus backbone and really add on to it and expand the potential of it to lead to better outcomes in different cancers. And their focus is on a number of different skin cancers, but they're also moving into solid tumors, which I think is pretty exciting. But so what the company's got here is three different viruses, RP1, 2, and 3. RP1 is basically their flagship product here. It's the one that's probably furthest along, and it's a herpes simplex backbone that expresses granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor, as well as this protein called GALF-GPR negative. And what these do, GMCSF is able to stimulate immune cell production and then GALF-GPR negative, it enhances the oncolytic ability of the virus. And just to talk, I guess, about oncolytic viruses, the, the goal here is to have a virus that is able to replicate and basically lyse or burst tumor cells exclusively. So here, in this way, it's a bit of a targeted therapy in that we want the virus to only target cancer cells, which these viruses do and we want them to replicate in them, taking advantage of their machinery. And what this does is kind of twofold. One is that we can get the virus to hijack the machinery of the cancer cell to express these genes. And in this case, it's GMCSF and GALF-GPR negative. But also what'll happen is as those cancer cells burst, it's going to expose a number of cancer antigens to the systemic immune system. And these antigens will then prime the 
host immune system to attack cancer cells that have these antigens. So there's kind of a twofold mechanism working here that I think is going on. And Replimune is trying to take advantage of this to the best extent possible to improve cancer outcomes. So for RP2, it's a little bit more advanced where the herpes simplex backbone is expressing GMCSF, GALGPR negative, as well as a checkpoint inhibitor antibody, anti-CTLA-4. So in this way, they're trying to just enhance the ability of the virus to promote the host immune system here. And then with RP3, it's the same as RP1, except it has this other protein, 4-1-BBL and CD4 ligand. And these two proteins, they're able to enhance T cells, basically. And you can read more about them, you know, Google them and, and find out more if you want to. But basically, they're trying to enhance the T cell response in patients. And to get to the data update, we saw that around June 3rd, they presented an update in RP1 as well as in RP2. And for the RP1 update, they shared insight into their RP1 plus Updevo in both non-melanoma skin cancer as well as melanoma skin cancer. And what I talked about in my previous video as well is that the indication that they're focusing on in non-melanoma skin cancer is this cancer known as CSCC. So this is the one that I think has the biggest impact in this non-melanoma skin cancer cohort. And what we saw is that the number of valuable patients went from 11 to 15. And the difference in data, the complete responders went from 5 to 7. So that's nice to see. Partial responders went down, but I think it means that one patient moved from partial response to complete response, which is nice. And then unfortunately, we did see an increase in progressive disease patients that went from two to four. Now, they're still sitting in an objective response rate of 60%, which is a bit of a decline, but I still think that in a larger patient population context, that still bodes very well for the therapy. And I think for us, seeing that patients are moving from partial response to complete response means that there is an effect going on here. And for that reason, I think that it does bode very well for this CSCC indication. For the other non-melanoma skin cancers, they did update some data. I don't put too much stock into this data though because they are focusing on CSCC, but in Merkel cell carcinoma in particular, they did see that adding three patients to their number of valuable patients, they got three that had a partial response. So I think that bodes very well for the therapy. For basal cell carcinoma and angiosarcoma, there wasn't too much of an update. They added one or two extra patients, so I didn't think it meant that much in this data update. If we move on, though, and look at melanoma cancers in particular, the number of valuable patients didn't change for melanoma, but what they did see is that they got an additional complete responder in anti-PD-1 naive patients. Unfortunately, though, they did get an additional progressive disease patient. Now the company is gonna be focusing on PD-1 failed patients though. So if we look at this, we don't see really any change in the data. There's still one complete responder, four partial responders, stable disease is the same as well as progressive disease. So here, it's kind of a neutral, I think, going from October to now, seeing no improvement but no worsening, it makes you wonder whether or not patients are gonna fall back into progressive disease, but I think it remains to be seen. So for me, this is kind of neutral, maybe a little bit bearish for the stock. But of course, these are kind of their initial trials. And I think what we need to focus on is that they're going to be moving ahead with these therapies in a more registrational setting. So what we can expect is a registrational phase two trial in CSCC. They're looking to register 180 patients, which is a much larger trial than what we're looking at here. 
and this is going to be RP1 plus Libtio versus Libtio alone. So this dual arm trial is going to show whether or not the addition of RP1 is actually going to lead to a beneficial outcome. And Libtio is another PD-1 drug, but it is actually indicated for CSCC, where I believe Updevo, while it's still indicated for a number of cancers as well as uh, different carcinomas, I don't think it's specifically indicated for CSCC. So using Libtio, I think, makes sense here because it is in treatment right now for CSCC. So this is going to be exciting to see whether or not they can get positive data here and then hopefully lead to a registrational submission. The company is also looking at moving forward with anti-PD-1 failed melanoma. And here they're going to be doing a phase two single arm trial. So only one arm, which is obviously a lot easier, but they're assuming here that the data is going to be so compelling that they're going to be able to get accelerated approval here. They're targeting 125 patients that have failed PD-1 therapy alone or in combination. And like I mentioned, they're going to be hoping to get accelerated approval. So they're going to have to do some kind of confirmatory trial in the future. And we're going to talk about accelerated approval coming up with Biogen, but this is what's going on for RP1. Overall, I think this is positive and that the data sell-off might not have been due to RP1, but rather the RP2 data that we're going to be talking about just now. And what they shared is RP2 updates in monotherapy as well as in combination with Updevo. And for the monotherapy update, they have an N of 9, and this is fully enrolled for their treatment in different solid tumors. And so they gave an update on three patients with a resist response that they reported in SITSI in October of 2020. And what they shared here is that the complete responder in mucoepidermoid cancer is still ongoing with their complete response, which is great. The esophageal cancer partial responder is still a partial responder at 18 months. They say here that a PET scan showed no evidence of metabolic disease in May. The uveal melanoma with liver metastases did end up progressing at 15 months. And then they have a colorectal patient with mixed response in liver lesions ended up progressing at six months. So what we're looking at here is that out of nine patients, and I'm just blowing this up on the screen, really they have two responses, which I don't think is super positive for RP2 and solid tumors. Solid tumors are extremely difficult to treat, but I think that showing a pretty muted response in patients just doesn't bode very well for RP2 as a monotherapy here. Now they do say that activity was shown in all patients where injections were made into the liver, three out of three, including two to three resist responses. So it seems like they're hinting that the liver is relatively important here, and it seems like potentially liver is going to be a cancer that they focus on. Maybe not with RP2, but RP3 it looks that way. The other piece of data they showed is their combination with Updevo with RP2. And here it's a bigger trial. They looked at 30 patients where 27 of them were valuable today. And what they shared is that they got six partial responses. And it looks like most of these are similar to previous indications with RP1. Most of them are in anti-PD-1 failed melanoma as well as uveal melanoma. And then they say here that 14 of the 27 patients have either responded or still have the opportunity to respond. And to me, this suggests that 13 patients then the difference between 27 and 14, are not really gonna have an opportunity to respond. So it seems like only around half still have the opportunity to respond or have responded. And what that says to me is that the upside here is relatively limited. And I think that the excitement around adding the anti-CTLA-4 in the RP2 virus 
it's just not bearing as much fruit as I think we were expecting. And now it is relatively early. The current objective response rate is 22% being six out of 27 patients. And that's not really much better than what the RP1 in combination with Updevo showed. So for us, I think that this might be the reason why the stock did not do very well after the announcement, even though this is a very difficult to treat patient population. So I think if anything, we're expecting the addition of anti-CTLA-4 here to show a better response potentially than RP1, but it doesn't look like we're getting that today. And I think it might be for this reason that the stock sold off. I don't really think that this is gonna hurt the company long-term because they do have a number of shots on goal that could lead to an approval eventually. Now for RP3, just to give an update, they're still early with RP3, but what they're planning on doing is determining the safety of RP3, including when injected into liver metastases. They're doing an ongoing phase one clinical trial of RP3 alone and in combination with anti-PD-1 therapy. They're assessing RP2 and RP3 in a multi-cohort phase two clinical trial in patients with liver metastases. And here they're gonna be looking for an around N of 20 to 40 per cohort in a variety of different solid tumors, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, etc. And I think that them focusing so much on solid tumors is very exciting. They're obviously very difficult to treat cancers, but if they're able to see improvements in patients with liver metastases, I think it would be really huge because once patients have liver metastases, the number of options they have for treatment are very limited. So seeing whether or not a, an oncolytic virus could improve outcomes there, I think would be really, really beneficial for the patient population. I took a position after this sell-off in Replimune. I think that the company long-term still has a ton of potential. They're trading at around a $1.5 billion market cap, and I see them being comparable or better than Iovance. I wanted to mention the upcoming data sets that are expected for the end of 2021. We're going to be seeing an update from RP2 and Updevo in their all-comers study. I think now expectations have been tempered here, so I don't imagine that this is going to be a big mover. If anything, it might lead to a sell-off because I just think that they're not going to see a number of positive responses here. They are going to be sharing with us initial single-agent data in RP3 Phase 1, and this is in an all-comers study where they're going to have a number of solid tumors. They're gonna be sharing with us RP1 plus Updevo, anti-PD-1 failed, non-small cell lung cancer initial data, which I think could be a big mover for the stock. And then they have a couple of other smaller readouts, but I think those top three are gonna be probably the most important with the RP3 and the RP1 plus Updevo, non-small cell lung cancer data being the most important. So that's Replimune. Overall, I think they're gonna be a long-term hold. And for that reason, I, I took an additional position in the stock. All right, now before I get to the feature story for today, I wanted to thank our sponsor, and I am thrilled to have these guys as a sponsor for the show. The company is called Biofarm IQ. The website is bpiq.com. And what these guys do is they're a research platform for small and mid-cap biotech investors. BPIQ manually sources and compiles info for over 550 companies, including over 1,800 of their drug assets. And some of the features that I love about this is their searchable Catalyst calendar as well as pipeline screener. They have profiles on all these companies as well as all the pipelines. They share the big mover events as well as the profiles for the drugs in these companies. And they share here Catalyst dates, drug history, mechanism of action, and more. And for me personally, I stumbled upon this website and realized that 
they are going to save me an enormous amount of time. And frankly, time is a pretty valuable resource. And rather than having to scour all of the corporate presentations looking for the data updates and when we can expect catalysts, I can just go to bpiq.com, type in my company's ticker name, and it'll all be there. So they make my life extremely easy. And for this reason, I think that BPIQ is an invaluable resource if you're going to be trading uh, biotech, especially small and mid-cap biotech. So you can try BPIQ today for free for a 30-day trial, but I think the company is going to be announcing something relatively soon where you can get access to more features for free. But what I would suggest you do is lock in your rate right now for the pro version, which you can get for only $12 a month if you buy the whole year. That's less than 150 bucks. And frankly, I have made that up multiple times over with just the amount of time savings that I've accumulated by being able to just access BPIQ's Catalyst calendar and just getting the information very quickly. And I think that that is worth it in and of itself. So check them out. Use my link below so that they know that I sent you there. But the website is bpiq.com. Check them out. Happy to have them as a sponsor. And with that, let's get to the feature story for today. And that is Biogen. And just to give some background on Biogen, their ticker symbol is BIIB. They closed on Friday the 11th at $396 a share, giving them a market cap of $60 billion. And this is up from a $45 billion market cap before the Aducanumab news. Biogen's Q1 2021 net income was $410 million, which is down substantially from previous years. Their Q1 2021 current assets sit at around $7 billion, and their current liabilities sit at around $3 billion. And I looked at Biogen's mission statement, and they say here that they discover, develop, and deliver worldwide innovative therapies for people living with serious neurological and neurodegenerative diseases. And this seems to be in line with what Biogen is able to do. They have a number of different therapies that focus on really four areas. They've got an MS franchise, they have an anti-CD20 franchise, they have a biosimilars franchise, as well as a really... It's one drug, but for spinal muscular atrophy, which is Spinraza. And now what they can add to that due to this approval is Alzheimer's disease. So what the news that we heard is that the FDA granted accelerated approval for Aduhelm, which is the commercial name for Aducanumab. And what they say it is, is the first and only Alzheimer's disease treatment to address a defining pathology of the disease. And I just want to read the label here because it is really as good as Biogen could have expected. Aduhelm is an amyloid beta-directed antibody indicated for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. This indication is approved under accelerated approval based on reduction in amyloid beta plaques observed in patients treated with Aduhelm. Continued approval for this indication may be contingent upon verification of clinical benefit in confirmatory trials. So this is the distinction that people are making here is that Aduhelm is approved only under accelerated approval. And what this means is that Biogen has to provide a confirmatory trial as a phase four study. But what we heard is that Biogen has until next August to finalize a plan for the confirmation study, and they have until 2029 to finish testing and until 2030 to actually submit a final report to regulators. So this gives Biogen nine years worth of marketing approval for Aduhelm without needing to show whether or not there's an actual clinical benefit of aducanumab in patients. Now they say here that if Biogen fails to complete the study or the results are negative, the FDA can withdraw approval of Aduhelm from the market, which 
is possible, but we, we've seen before that the FDA is very reluctant to pull drugs from the market. So there's a bit of an asterisk there. And what we also heard is that Biogen priced the drug at around $56,000 per year. And to give some background on aducanumab, and I'm not going to belabor this, I've talked about it a lot, and you can probably find other resources that explain it in more detail, but this is the data from their phase three studies. And the controversy surrounding aducanumab is that the company originally ended these phase three studies early due to a futility analysis. And then for some reason, the company decided to change their mind and move forward with finishing the studies. They collected the data and presented it here. The FDA then invited them to submit a biologics license application for marketing authorization. There was an advisory committee that voted overwhelmingly against approval. And then what we saw on the 7th of June is that the FDA went against them and decided to approve the drug anyway. The relevant part here is that the drug has questionable efficacy. The ENGAGE study, which is one of the two phase three studies, showed basically no difference in aducanumab compared to placebo. The EMERGE study, on the other hand, the other phase three study did show some modest improvement in ADAS-COG-13, comparing the high-dose aducanumab to placebo, and you can see that difference here. It's an improvement of about 1.5 points on the ADAS-COG-13 scale. So with two conflicting pieces of evidence here, one showing no difference and one showing a difference, we're left really uncertain on whether or not aducanumab does have an effect in improving Alzheimer's disease but we did see that they are able to reduce the amount of amyloid beta in the brain by a significant amount. Aducanumab isn't the only drug that is able to do this. A number of other drugs have showed that they can reduce amyloid beta, but the problem is that that reduction in amyloid beta doesn't always correlate with the cognitive benefit, which is the crux of the argument here. Should the FDA have approved a drug that shows no clinical benefit, but does show an improvement in amyloid beta reduction? I think not, but that's something to be debated. I did want to mention here that the adverse events are something to note. The number of patients that have ARIA-E, which refers to amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, and there's two versions of it. One is edema and the other one is microhemorrhage. For the edema, 35% of patients in both trials presented with this condition. And it's not always serious. I think two-thirds of them were asymptomatic, but they were able to see it on the imaging. And it does end up resolving most of the time. And that is what Biogen says here. So some of the symptoms associated with ARIA include headache, dizziness, visual disturbances, nausea, and vomiting. ARIA-E episodes generally resolve within 4 to 16 weeks. And the majority of patients were able to continue the investigational treatment despite having ARIA-E. So it's something to note that being treated with aducanumab does come with some side effects, even though they could be asymptomatic. It's something that is gonna to have to be monitored by a physician. So Biogen has approval now, and I wanna talk about why this is so important. And I wanna first talk more globally about Biogen as a whole. And the reason why Aduhelm is such a boom for Biogen is that they were coming up to a lot of issues with their existing portfolio. We can see here I've got from Q2 19 to Q1 2021, the change in revenue. And we can see here that the revenue has been going down, especially in the last year by a significant amount. And the reason for this is that their MS franchise in particular is seeing substantial competition. So I've broken down the revenue now based on their franchise. 
the vast majority of their income comes from Tecfidera or Interferon, and that has been substantially declining in the last year or so. And it's expected to decline only more so as more competitors get onto the market. So what it was really going to take for Biogen is to break out in the CNS space to some extent and get a new blockbuster to replace something like Tecfidera. And the drugs that they've been including into their portfolio, one recent one is Spinraza, and they've been able to garner 500 million bucks, but the growth of that franchise has really been limited, and I don't think we can expect too much more than 500 million. So it's for these revenue concerns that Biogen was really at a make or break point, that if they could not get another therapy on the market to be another blockbuster, I saw a lot of downside in the stock. So what we see now with Aduhelm is a serious amount of revenue potential for the company. And I'm going to share that now. So the Alzheimer's disease patient population in the USA is 6.2 million patients. And if we multiply that by $56,000 per year, we sit at a total addressable market of around $347 billion, which is massive. Now, I don't think that Biogen is going to be able to even come close to this potential total addressable market, but we can start to look a little bit more at how they're going to segment it and who they're going to go after first. So I think the first thing that we should do is assume that Biogen is going to focus on mild Alzheimer's disease patients or mild cognitive impairment patients due to Alzheimer's disease. And the reason for this is that their phase three studies focused on those two patient populations. They didn't look at patient populations that had advanced Alzheimer's disease. So for this reason, I think that doctors, if anything, are gonna be more likely to prescribe it to those who have early pathology. And I focus here on the MMSC, but the MMSC was between 24 and 30, which is normal in general, but these patients did have a confirmed amyloid pathology. So what I think is gonna be needed or what Biogen is gonna push for is that patients that are within that age group but are normal cognitively, I think they're gonna push for more screening for amyloid pathology because that's what it's gonna take for a doctor to even think about considering patients for aducanumab is they're gonna to need to see whether or not there's that amyloid pathology. But if patients aren't going to the doctor complaining about a cognitive problem, how are they going to know if they have an amyloid pathology? So I think that's where some of the difficulty is going to be for Biogen. But if we assume that they're going to be able to target these patients with mild AD or MCI due to AD, I've estimated that 40% of Alzheimer's disease patients fall into this category. And I have my sources here. You can check them out. And the other interesting thing is that because the Alzheimer's disease patient population is so old, a lot of them are going to be covered by Medicare, and it's widely assumed that Medicare is going to cover aducanumab to some extent. So I think the other question is going to be around payer support. And I'm going to talk in a second about the other drug that was approved by accelerated approval with questionable efficacy, which was Sarepta's drug. But they found that some payers were not willing to cover the drug because they didn't show any clinical efficacy. And I think that it's possible that aducanumab is gonna find themselves in a similar situation with certain payers, but I think something like Medicare is likely to cover the drug. But I think that that question is gonna be one that is going to make or break whether or not aducanumab can see the type of revenue that I'm expecting. The other thing to note is that Biogen developed this drug in collaboration with a company called Esai, and under that collaborative agreement, Biogen will receive only 55% of the potential profits in the USA. 
They have agreements around the entire world, but for today, given that it's only approved in the United States, Biogen's only gonna see 55% of that revenue. So if we do 40% of 347 billion and 55% of that, given that they're only gonna see half and the other half is gonna go to ESI, I estimate the peak sales to be $70 billion. So if I do that and assume that there's gonna be a modest ramp up of aducanumab sales, reaching only around 50% of that 70 billion, I give a price target of 650 bucks per share or a $100 billion market cap for Biogen. And for me, I think it's a buy. I think that Biogen today, given that this is kind of where they are, I don't think the downside is as realistic a possibility as the upside, given that they're already shipping doses of aducanumab and they already have a sales team, a commercial organization ready to go. I think that it's gonna be pretty easy for them to start getting prescriptions for aducanumab. And I think that the 650 price target could be on the lower end. So I took a position in Biogen for this reason. And I think that the upcoming catalysts that they have also support a buy because Biogen was a little bit on the ropes needing to get patient data back so that they could get a therapy through the pipeline and approve. But given that they have Aduhelm, this really pads their balance sheet. And I think that with all the cash that they're gonna generate from this, they can look to do a lot more mergers and acquisitions in order to continue to support that pipeline that's gonna give them the revenue in the future. So I'm happy to share the model that I have. I'll put it in the Google Drive that I have with my other presentation so people can look at it. But for me, I think Biogen's a buy and I'm probably gonna hold on to it for a few years until we can see that realization of the Aduhelm revenue that I think is going to impress analysts. If we compare Aduhelm to Exondis 51, which was Sarepta's drug, and this was another controversial accelerated approval in 2016, it's a really similar thing. They were able to show that it had some improvement in biomarkers, but there was no clinical benefit in these patients. Now, this is a significantly smaller patient population. Exondis 51 is only effective in 13% of the Duchenne muscular dystrophy population, and there's only around 250,000 Duchenne muscular dystrophy patients in the USA. The drug was priced significantly higher than aducanumab at $892,000 per year, giving a total addressable market of $29 billion. And if we look at their revenue up until 2019, which is where they only had one drug on the market, which was Exondis 51, they got 0.5% of the total addressable market in their first year of approval, 1% in the second year, and they sat around 1.3% of the third year. But again, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is kind of a complicated disease here, and Aduhelm really did get a blanket slate to be indicated for all Alzheimer's disease patients, and it's me that's kind of putting the artificial constraints on the mild or MCI due to AD patient population. So I think my estimates are relatively conservative here if we compare it to Sarepta. And I think it just shows that people are going to want to take this drug even though the clinical efficacy is in the air. And I think the placebo effect is probably gonna play a role here where people are gonna think that they're getting better even if there's no cognitive improvement here. And it's gonna take years for Biogen to move ahead with their phase four study. And I think they're gonna to totally milk those nine years and drag their feet as long as possible. The interesting thing about Sarepta, though, is that they were also able to get their next generation drug, Golodirsin, approved. They got an initial complete response letter, but they were then able to get it approved, showing no clinical benefit, but only a benefit in biomarkers. So 
I think the FDA is putting themselves in kind of a complicated spot here with the CNS space because there's a number of other companies that have CNS assets that might not show clinical benefit, but they do show an improvement in biomarkers. And I'll touch more on this in a little bit. But the last thing I'll say is that Anthem was the big payer that was not willing to add Exondus 51 to the formulary. And then also we saw that the European Medicines Agency denied the marketing approval for Exondus 51. And what Biogen is looking to do is get aducanumab approved in Brazil, Canada, Switzerland, and Australia. And it's going to be up to these individual countries' regulatory agencies to decide whether or not they're going to get approval. And a lot of countries do follow the FDA's lead, but we see here that the EMA was able to stand their ground on Sarepta's drug, and we'll see if they're able to do it for uh, aducanumab. And it's all up in the air. I think these are all kind of coin flips, maybe closer towards approval, but I don't really know. But it means that there's also potential revenue sources in a bunch of other countries. So it remains to be seen what will happen, but it's uh, interesting times, we'll put it that way. In terms of upcoming readouts, I think there's some interesting things here that could lead to more upside in the stock. Biogen has a gene therapy for choroiduremia, and we're expecting results in Q2. They're also looking at different depression disorders in collaboration with SAGE. And these are going to read out pretty soon. I don't really have an opinion one way or another on whether that's going to be good data, but I think that the fact that the catalyst is coming out, there could be some more upside for Biogen here. And then they also have a phase three readout for ALS, and that's going to happen in the second half of this year. Now, some phase two readouts that I think could be pretty important, the one in particular is for Alzheimer's disease. They have another antibody called gosuranumab, which targets tau. And if they can show good phase two data here, I could just assume that the stock is going to move up a bit in response to that. And then another thing that I'll say is that if you remember BAN2401, which is the first drug that I covered in response to Biogen, which I was very bearish on at the time, they have finally enrolled their last patient in their phase three clarity Alzheimer's disease study in early Alzheimer's disease. And BAN2401 is similar to aducanumab in that it targets a part of the amyloid beta story, but aducanumab is more broad. But the readout for this phase three clarity study is gonna be huge for the company, and I think that it's just possible that it'll be a similar story to aducanumab. So I wanted to touch on briefly the implications of the FDA's decision moving forward. And I think what's gonna be important to note is, you know, the real question is gonna be, how is the FDA gonna treat a lower profile CNS drug approval? Aducanumab being the first one to make it to the BLA submission with this situation where they have some biomarker data with minimal clinical efficacy, I do wonder whether or not the FDA is going to approve other drugs that have a similar profile. What we're seeing now is a lot of excitement in the CNS space. We see Cassava moving up, we see Anovis moving up quite a bit on this news because they're probably going to be able to show good biomarkers with modest efficacy as well. And it's going to take another approval from the FDA for us to understand whether or not it's basically a free-for-all for CNS drugs or if Biogen was a special case and other drugs are going to have to hit these higher thresholds in order to get approval. Another implication is going to be loss of confidence in the FDA. And what does that really mean materially? I think more than anything, it just means that larger companies are going to focus on lobbying efforts more so than an R&D budget which does mean that the potential to have less efficacious drugs approved is higher, 
But we're going to have to see whether or not that bears out in the actual decisions that the FDA makes. We have seen that there was resignation of a number of advisory committee members after this decision because the advisory committee voted overwhelmingly against approval and they did anyway. But I think it's not going to be a big deal. They're going to easily fill those empty spots pretty soon because they are very prestigious positions that people in the field would love to have. So I don't think it means too much, but we'll see. And then the last point kind of related to the first one is that there are a number of different amyloid beta lowering drugs currently in the pipeline. And I took this chart from BioCentury. They do these nice summary graphs. And I thought this one was particularly nice to outline the differences between the different amyloid beta lowering drugs. And the companies that have these, Eli Lilly is a big one, Roche, Genentech, uh, obviously Biogen and Esai have that other amyloid beta lowering drug, Band 2401, and then this other company called Alzion. And it remains to be seen how the FDA is going to treat these amyloid beta lowering drugs. It seems like maybe amyloid beta lowering is in play, but it really remains to be seen. And it is going to take that next approval on whether or not we can say whether it is kind of open season on CNS drugs or Biogen happened to lobby the FDA in the right way to get approval here compared to another company that might not have the lobbying effort behind it that Biogen did. So remains to be seen, but that's uh, that's what I got about Biogen. So let me know what you think. I, uh, I do think Biogen's a buy. I took a position and I think it's going to be a nice hold for the next few years. In terms of upcoming catalysts, we heard that 4D molecular technologies had their lockup expiration and the stock moved up actually on that news. So I took a position and I think it'll be good for the rest of 2021. We're still waiting on Atrika, Hepion, ALX Oncology, YMTX, GLTO, and then the catalyst that I said for Biogen as well as Sage. GLTO was a victim of Wall Street bets pumping and dumping and I took the opportunity to sell. Unfortunately, not at the high that I wish I could have, but I missed out on that. I will take another position in this under five if it gets there to uh, expect a positive COVID-19 data readout, but we'll see. To do a quick portfolio wrap up, I did do a, a number of different moves in the market. So I'm gonna explain those here. I sold GLTO, sold some Oncternal. I got out of Axome and the reason for this is that they're going to be doing an updated readout on their treatment resistant depression. And they also have a PDUFA date. I think that the odds of getting success in their TRD indication is relatively low. And I think that the PDUFA is priced in at this point. So for me, I'm happy to get out of the stock and the trade, I was flat on it, so I'm okay with that. But I think I'd rather use that money towards some of the new positions that I took. And those are an addition in my Replimune position, opening a Biogen, Curis, 40 molecular therapies, as well as PDSB. And I haven't talked about PDSB, but I thought their ASCO data was good and that the sell-off was unwarranted. So for that reason, I took a position and so far it's looking pretty good. Other things that happened in the market, Trillium has been moving up on basically no news. So I wonder what's going on there. We did see some insider buys in Viking. And so the stock's been moving nicely on that. Hepion's been moving up quite a bit too. And I think that's just in anticipation of the phase 2A readout. Cyclerion also moved up quite a bit, and I think that's based off of the aducanumab news. And Acadia has also moved up a bit, and we'll see how that shakes out. So overall, things are looking pretty good. I'm sitting at negative 3.5 or so, which is in line with the XBI. Also still beating ArcG, which you love to see. 
And overall, I think the biotech sector as a whole did a lot better than the traditional indices, the NASDAQ, Dow Jones, or the SPX. So I'm happy about that. And that's pretty much all I have for you guys. So I want to thank everybody for their attention. Appreciate all the support. Let me know what you think. Send me an email at matthewlapoire at gmail.com or tweet at me at matthewlapoire. And with that, we'll end there. But thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.